You're listening to Radio Free Philosophy. So last time on Radio Free Philosophy, we were talking about uh, Descartes and his method of doubt and how he deduced his own existence. And then we kind of left it uh, with some questions about dualism, which we'll probably want to pick up on this time. Right. We always want to remember that Descartes was steeped in mathematics. And so he put a high price on deduction, power to deduce, to arrive at new truths. And his method of doubt led him to deduce that there is mind, indubitably, without doubt. He could not doubt that he had a mind. It was working. It was thinking. Cogito ergo sum. Therefore, there is mind. And even though he postulated that he might be deceived by some very powerful demon that still told him that he had to exist. I mean, you, you can't uh, be deceived unless you exist. But this possibility of being deceived left him with a problem, which is how to go any further uh, with your philosophy. And so in Descartes' view, in order to overcome this problem and get to the real world of material substance, which he wants to do in later meditations, he has to prove the existence of God, which is the subject of the third meditation. Exactly. He, as a mathematician, he put a high price on clear and distinct ideas. And as a thinking being, as mind, he knows that he's a clear and distinct idea called perfection. Where would that idea come from? It seems, uh, yeah, it seems unclear where, where that idea would come from. I mean, one explanation might be, well, we just invented the idea. Uh, we just somehow came up with this notion of perfection. But it's hard to imagine for Descartes that that would be possible because w what do we have to generate that idea? I mean, our sense experience doesn't give us anything that has even a remote sense of perfection to it. So could we have just invented that idea from nothing? We couldn't, seems like, get it from sense experience. Even in his thinking, he's, he's acutely aware of being imperfect. <clears throat> of plodding along, as, as brilliant and clear a thinker as he was. But he does have everything in comparison with this idea of perfection. So if he has the idea of perfection, it must come from something that's perfect. And so from that, it's an easy path for him to arrive at the existence of a God that could implant the idea of perfection in his mind. Yeah, it's easy when we say it. It's not so easy when Descartes uh, wrote it. In fact, his proof seems to be very complicated, at least in how he describes it. I suppose part of that is because he's setting out a lot of foundational work early on before he actually gets to the proof. I think the proof only takes up one paragraph in the third meditation, but he has to do a lot of laying of the foundation, in particular uh, uh, addressing this notion that some ideas can have greater reality 
than others, which strikes the modern ear as sort of strange. But to readers of Descartes' time, they would have understood that because they were steeped in the vocabulary of the time, thanks in part to people like Aquinas, who, sure. who like to talk in terms of objective and formal reality, which is a set of terms that, that kind of baffles us because we, we have a different meaning for the word objective. For, for Descartes, strangely enough, objective is an adjective used to refer to ideas, whereas in our world, objective refers to objects. Seems Very good. reasonable. But uh, that, that makes Descartes' claim that the idea of, of perfection has more objective reality sound confusing. But he's not talking about the object. He's talking about the idea. And so if the idea has so much reality we have to account for where that idea could come from and effects cannot have more reality than their cause says Descartes precisely this his argument called the ideological argument the idea argument for the existence of God is really a causal argument everything has a cause and Descartes is again filled with the language, the vocabulary of the scholastic philosophy of the Middle Ages. He's not that far removed, maybe three or four hundred years removed from their language. And he has a vocabulary that none of us would use today, as you point out. Yeah, it's ironic that he's using that vocabulary, because part of what he seems to want to do in philosophy is make a revolutionary That's break. Right. That's right, to get away from But that. he can't. He's, no. he's got to use those concepts. He has uh, to use the tools available to him. Right. And I suppose uh, he's at least partially thinking he's got to use a set of tools that other people will recognize. And the readers of Descartes' meditations would recognize the tools of scholastic philosophy. If he comes up with a whole new vocabulary, it's going to be hard to sell his ideas because they, they don't have any reference point. But the, the value that he put on ideas, as you point out correctly, is not the same as we put on, on ideas today. Is a, a title we often use of books in philosophy called The Power of Ideas. We call philosophy the study of the power of ideas. An idea is powerful, and it was for Descartes. Powerful enough to say something that great, something that good had to have a cause. Um, I don't know what we could look at in modern times that would be comparable to the power of an idea. Maybe the notion of that spurred the Russian Revolution or the French Revolution. The equality of all people. Yeah, precisely uh, ideas, right? Ideas, it's, uh, yes. What, what changed, what transformed Poland from a communist society to a democratic society? Again, this idea that people matter, the power of a vote. Yeah, we seem to be, at least in large part, in this century, very empiricist-minded, but we still can't get out of the influence of, of ideas, and they're, they're just all around us, and eventually... Uh, that comes to be the, the most important thing uh, when you really get down to what's going on and what's influencing people. I mean, just take uh, uh, the conflicts in the Middle East. I mean, there's lots of different religious ideas that, that are, yeah. are fomenting that, that conflict. Of course, the conflict gets played out in real-world settings with real-world guns and bombs, but it's the ideas that that are really having the influence. The ideas have so much influence that they transcend all, all arguments that, that seem to us rational to call a halt to the violence. The idea is more powerful than any reasonable argument, it seems to me. The idea, for example, of um, 
back to our own times, our, our president is poised to veto um, legislation permitting federal funding for embryonic stem cell research. He is convinced against all arguments and against a tie to public opinion that an embryo represents a human being. That idea is powerful enough him to, for him to exercise his first veto in his presidential career. You know, there's a um, interesting take on this. We might be getting a little bit off subject, but we, we can certainly get back around to it, I'm sure. Um, this this notion of the how ideas work. Uh, there's a scientist named Richard Dawkins who points out that they work an awful lot like genes work. I mean, the pur purpose of a gene is to replicate itself. The purpose of an idea, or what Dawkins calls a meme, kind of playing on the notion of a gene, is yeah. precisely the same thing, replication. And so good memes are ones that are able to replicate themselves. And certainly some of the ideas that, uh, that we talk about in philosophy have turned out to be very good memes because they keep replicating over and over and over, century after century. Sure, we often speak of the marketplace of ideas. Um, as there's a free market in the economy, good products will, will ultimately win the market over poor, poor products. Um, so do ideas. There's a, there's a marketplace of ideas out there, and the, and the good ideas, as you say, replicate themselves and gather momentum. And outworn ideas, bad ideas, don't have much success. A perfect example of that in Descartes' time was the idea of dualism. Descartes didn't invent dualism, but he certainly made it a much more powerful meme, if we want to use Dawkins' term. And it's so powerful that many people are still infected by it. And that's not using that in a pejorative sense, simply the idea that, that people have this idea and believe in it. We often comment on this show that all philosophy is just a footnote to Plato, who was a dualist in the sense of uh, form and matter. But we can also say that the power of Descartes' dualism, his idea that there is mind and there is a substance called matter, has dominated philosophy ever since. So it's powerful. So I guess uh, maybe we want to look at uh, how Descartes got to his dualism. We've pointed out that Descartes was able to deduce his own existence, but his existence as a thinking thing didn't have any material substance connected with it. And his idea of God doesn't have any material substance connected with it. No. So somehow material substance has to enter into this, otherwise we don't have any, any dualism. And he really starts talking about that in the sixth meditation, right, where he actually deduces the existence of material substance. And that deduction turns out to be fairly simple, uh, given everything in the prior five meditations. And he starts with something which I think is very interesting. Maybe a lot of people don't think about it this way, but when you perceive the world around you, from Descartes' perspective, it's a, it's a passive thing that we're doing. Most of our perceptions are not voluntary. I mean, if they were voluntary, you would think we would come up with better ones than the ones we're having. We don't have any control over our perceptions, most of them. So that raises the question, of where do they come from? Well, if I don't have any control over them, I can't be the cause of them. Maybe it's God. We just proved that God exists, right? So sure. maybe God is the cause of our perceptions. Sure, and along with this goes the idea of perfection. It's still the, the powerful um, catalyst for him to conclude the existence of God. But if God is the cause of all our perceptions, all the information that comes our way, can we be mistaken about these perceptions? 
we can doubt them, but would God really deceive us? Would a perfect being who implanted the idea of perfection in me allow me to be deceived by my senses? And that's what God would be doing if he were the source of these uh, perceptions. Because, I mean, when I look at the table in front of me, it seems like that my perception of the table is coming from the table itself, not God. But if it were coming from God, then that would make God out to be a deceiver, which is totally contradictory to the notion of God being a perfect being. So from that, Descartes says we can deduce that the material object is the cause of our perceptions. Therefore, material substance exists. Yes. And so we can have confidence in material substance. But when he uses the word substance, it, it doesn't mean it like we use the word today. We talk about controlled substances and things like that. We think of white powder. That's not what substance meant for Descartes. Substance, as he used it, comes from a Latin word substantia, meaning that which stands under something. It's not something that can be seen and touched, tasted, or felt. It, it's the ground for receiving qualities. So it's, it's an extension in space. It's a strange philosophical idea when you when you put it that way, and it's going to end up getting us into a lot of problems when we get to uh, Locke in particular and Barclay. This notion of substance being the foundation of attributes, but it can't be perceived itself. That's kind of a strange thing. Well, it goes back to a, a classical distinction made by Aristotle that the material world is comprised of substance and accidents. And the accidents are the weight, shape, form, color, that reside in the substance and make give the substance its qualities, but they are not the substance itself. Right, yeah, and that's a fundamental confusion people make even today is confusing the qualities for the substance. You say, well, what's the substance of this table? Well, it's hard. Well, but hardness is a quality that sure. the substance has. Well, you can't even say, well, the table's made of wood because wood is something that has qualities and substance as well, and so you're not getting at the substance. Sure, the essence of milk is not its whiteness. Right. That's just a quality. That's a hard distinction for us. We don't think in those terms anymore. So it, it looks like with the deduction of material substance, we've successfully gotten back everything that we seem to have lost in the first meditation by doubting, except now we have what might be the, the biggest problem that one philosopher has bequeathed to all the rest of philosophy. And that is the problem of how in the world do you explain how these different substances work together, which Descartes wants to claim they do, like this mind substance that we deduced in Meditation 1, along with this material substance we just deduced. Right. The primary attribute of the mind substance is thought, and the primary attribute of the matter substance is extension in space. And somehow, in us, they combine and interact. And exactly how is something we'll take a look at after the break.
You're listening to Radio Free Philosophy. Well, before the break, we were talking about the difference between mind and matter. How mind, being a substance that consists in thought, and matter, that consists in extension, are two very different things, two very different realities. And so, this is a fundamental problem of dualism. How do the two interact? How do they talk to each other? How can mind relate to matter? How can matter relate to mind? Yeah, it's funny that that seems to have become such a huge problem because it doesn't seem like Descartes saw it as a problem in his own writing. Because he ends the sixth meditation very soon after giving his what evidently to him is a completely adequate explanation. Uh, he points out that uh, we, we shouldn't be mistaken in thinking that mind and body interact as if uh, a, a one is a pilot in a vessel. It's not like the mind is just housed in the body. It's much more like they compose a unity is the phrase he uses. And he does recognize he has to explain something about that. And so he says, well, of course, the mind and body don't interact and compose a unity at every point in the body. It occurs in the brain, specifically in the pineal gland. Mm -hmm. And then he leaves it. And it leaves it. But it still leaves us with the problem of how does my intention, my purpose that is purely thought, cause a function in my body? For example, if I wanted to raise my hand in class to ask a question, I have the intention, the thought, the desire, which is, again, mind, to ask to raise my hand. But how does my hand get raised? Does my thought cause my body to respond? See, he never really answers this. Yeah, and many people seem content to say, well, it just causes it. As if saying cause explains it. Of course, that doesn't explain anything. We need a mechanism. Not at all, but How does the intention get communicated to I, the arm? I think we call it today an interface. There is no explainable interface between mind and matter, except his almost lame-sounding explanation of a pineal gland at the center of the brain. Yeah, because that, while that might explain the where do they interact question, uh, it certainly doesn't explain the how do they interact question. Mm -hmm. And most people conclude even today that it doesn't even explain the where question. Right. Uh, I once heard that, that the main reason Descartes even offered that as an explanation was because it's the only part of the brain that's not divided into halves. It's centrally located in the brain. Right. right. And after all, nobody knew what the pineal gland did anyway, no. so that was as good an explanation as any. Uh, but it didn't, um, it didn't meet with universal approval, even in Descartes' time. No. Um, there were alternative suggestions. Um, we have the occasionalism of Malebranche. Um, we have Spinoza's uh, attempt to resolve the mind-body or the dualism with Descartes by saying, in the end, all things are one, even God, that we're all one. Yeah, he got got into a lot of trouble for uh, for saying that. But the but the one thing those two explanations have in common uh, with several others that were propagated, like Hobbes' materialism and uh, and uh, 
Leibniz's uh, pre-established harmony, is they all shrink from trying to explain the interaction between mind and body in favor of denying it. Yes. Which is a much easier attack than trying to explain how in the world do these two fundamentally incompatible substances interact. We just say, well, they don't interact. And then all you have to do is explain why we think they interact. Sure. Now, very few people, I think, would agree with Malbranche today, um, especially people coming from the scientific and educated communities, that the only the interaction comes about because God chooses each occasion, God being perfect and, and omnipotent and eternal, chooses each occasion and matches up the mind with matter. Yeah, that seems to be the, the strangest of all the explanations. It, it's like the ghost in the machine kind of thing, and it really is inadequate. But I suppose defenders of occasionalism at the time, and I can only think of a couple people who vocally defended it, would have said, well, look, I mean, you know, otherwise, if you don't have God doing this, what, what's God got to do? Because at the time, materialism was starting to become a, a more prominent theory, thanks in large part to Hobbes, yes. who said, yes. well, the only thing that's not material is God, and he's outside the universe anyway. So then you start wondering, well, if God's sitting outside the universe doing nothing, what's the point of having a God at all? So at least occasionalism gives God something to do. One might say a little too much to do. God's horribly involved in every aspect, every atomic molecular interaction in the universe. God is providing the occasion for it. And what's worse, the ones that are evil, he, he, that, that makes him responsible, exactly. doesn't it? I mean, if I go exactly. uh, shoot somebody, uh, I can at least claim that God is partially responsible for that. I did, after all, I wasn't the one that actually physically pointed the gun. That was God. It's the devil made me do a thing. Huh? Yeah. And God would be responsible for every cancerous growth, um, every malignancy. Um, it's, it's kind of an impossible task or an awesome task for God. But people of faith think that God is up to it. It's not a problem. But but the trend just after Descartes was more toward deism, where God is a non-involved creator. Yeah, that was kind of the view that uh, Leibniz took. Yes. Right? And Newton uh, was sort of an advocate of that. Well, uh, Newton was dis discovering the pre-established harmony that Leibniz saw, he was discovering laws, laws of motion, that seemed to work independently whether or not God was there. Right, right. And so uh, you can imagine God as being just like a, a, a clockmaker. Mm -hmm. He designs the clock, maybe he even winds he it winds up. winds it up and then walks away. And then walks away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Spinoza, of course, muddies the waters by saying there's no difference between God and everything else. Or, we're all God. We're all one. Yeah. Now, doesn't he use kind of an interesting take on the, the, the term we've talked about before, substance, to justify this? Because according to Spinoza's view, what Descartes calls a substance cannot be a substance by definition. Because substance is something that ought to be able to exist on its own without any support. And But mind and matter, neither one of them can do that. So... Spinoza almost takes a, a definitional approach to the question and says, by definition, Descartes' own definition, yes. the only thing that's a substance is God. Because its, it's, it's, it's primary, attribute, the primary attribute of God is to exist. That is the substance of God. It must exist. And therefore, it must encompass everything. Um, 
And so the things we call substances are really just attributes. Attributes of one God. And, and so um, we could call Spinoza a pantheist. Yeah, his that, critics uh, actually did call him yes, a pantheist. Yes, saying that God is everything. God is the world. We are God. God is us. Um, to blur the distinction between mind and matter. And that's an interesting approach because uh, one way of looking at it, which I think is uh, maybe a piece of evidence that Spinoza was onto something, is the question of the perspective that we use to the, to view the world. We just Spinoza might have said we just happen to be in the unfortunate position of having having a perspective that distinguishes tables from chairs from other people. If you look at it from the perspective of atoms, there's no difference. You can't tell on an atomic level where the table stops and my hand begins. On the other hand, if you look at it from the perspective of the whole universe, you can't make any useful distinction between the table and me either. It's only from our point of view, that's which true. just happens to be the wrong point of view. Mm -hmm. And that's why we get misled into thinking what Descartes thought, that is, that there are two substances. If you look at it from the proper perspective, it, it, that two-substance view, that dualist view, evaporates. Sure, that, that's very Einsteinian. Curious that Leibniz would have seen things that way. Einstein is credited for the theory of relativity. Everything depends upon our point of view, and that we're just energy units um, that are perceived to be separate from other energy units, but we're all one big energy mass. That somehow fits in both Leibniz and Spinoza. And you know, I have a lot of students today who who get very frustrated when we talk about all these different alternatives to Descartes' dualism because what they all want to know is all right well that's all interesting all those dumb people giving us dumb theories but what's the right answer and the sad truth is we still don't know oh. how this works uh, we're, we're still bemused by how in the world a brain and a mind if there are two different things can work together or if there's just one how it appears that there are two or how to explain how we can think the, the, the thinking that Descartes talks so much about we, we still don't know how that works no it's still a problem for us it shows you that Descartes left us with quite a conundrum didn't he of this mind matter dualism and it's not one that's at least in the foreseeable future going to be overcome uh, and we haven't even talked about two other options that might be considered even more radical than Malebranche's occasionalism and, and Spinoza and Leibniz that is the view that maybe the whole presumption of dualism is wrong. Because yes. even at the heart of it, uh, Leibniz was a dualist. Malbranche yes. was a dualist. Mm -hmm. They just denied interaction. Yes. Even some people say Spinoza was a dualist, just not a substance dualist. He was what, what has come to be called in the 20th century a property dualist. But maybe the whole notion of dualism is wrong. Maybe, as the materialists say, there is only physical substance. Or maybe it's, as the idealists say, there's only mental substance. Sure, and Descartes made it possible for us to see that as a fork in the road of philosophy. One can go either way, but you can't have both. So we'll see philosophers soon who are materialists, who say there is only matter, and we'll see philosophers soon who say there is only mind, only our ideas. That matter is an illusion. And you pointed out something interesting in the last uh, show, towards the end, that this fork in the road is is a decision that we, we have to make and there's really no third alternative which is ironic because most people if you ask them if you get them to talk about it seem to think dualism is the right answer 
Most philosophers, if you ask them, even most scientists say among all the options, that's the least possible option. So we only have these two other options left, materialism and idealism, sure. which are fundamentally incompatible. That's right, because the fork stays a fork. Yeah. So this is going to be a tough, uh, a tough question to, uh, to get ourselves out of. But it should provide us with many, many more hours of enjoyable conversation about philosophy. Yes, and so on that note, we'll leave it until the next uh, enjoyable conversation on Radio Free Philosophy. <laughs>